0: Before we read, I'm just gonna say a prayer for illumination. Father God, open our hearts and minds as we open your word. We want to hear your voice, to be transformed by it. Lead us out of fears and into the knowledge that you are with us and you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first reading is from Exodus chapter 19, verses one to 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders, all the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses said to, told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Our second reading is from Isaiah chapter 60, verses one to five and then 15 to 22. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To, the rich, to you, the riches of the nations will come. Although you have been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your savior, your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest, a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will do this swiftly. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, If... If you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, we're doing a a kind of an extended Advent series. So we're looking up to Christmas and we're not just going through one book of the Bible. We're looking at a lot of the different key kind of moments and promises in the history of Israel, in the Old Testament that point forward towards the coming of Jesus. And this week we're talking about Mount Sinai and the the covenant that God made with Israel and with Moses. Um, And, And so we'll talk a little bit about the way that's talked about in different books of the Old Testament. But to begin, um, a couple of years, uh, a number of years ago, actually, in an English church in Dorset, a young boy, Thomas, was sitting listening to the vicar, and he had a religious experience of a sort which defined his approach to God and faith for the rest of his life. He had come kind of unbidden into his mind a thought which he was never able to shake. He was looking at the minister fumbling along and he said, no one, not even the vicar himself can take this seriously. He Said all of the fancy dress and the old building and the hymns and the liturgy and the sermon, no one in our day and age can take faith or church or God seriously. The young boy's name was Thomas Hardy He went on to be one of the most uh, influential English novelists and poets and he spent a lot of his career kind of um, critiquing or satirizing English middle class values and life, particularly its religion. And he wrote one particular poem called um, God's Funeral and it's gone on to be one of the most famous um, kind of depictions of life without God and it's not a kind of brave proclamation of moving beyond faith. It's a sad, mournful description of what happens when you find yourself like that young boy, unable to believe any longer. Here's a few of the lines from it. How sweet it was in years far hide to start the wheels of day with trustful prayer, to lay down leisurely at the eventide and feel a blessed assurance he was there. And who or what shall fill his place Whither will wanderers turn distracted eyes for some fixed star to stimulate their pace towards the goal of their enterprise? Still how to bear such loss I deemed the insistent question for each animate mind. What he's describing there in that somewhat complicated language is something that um, I think is a great description of what life is like without God. The, one of, the famous philosopher Charles Taylor described it this way as a kind of malaise, as a sense of, of flatness that we can't escape from. Perhaps during the Enlightenment, uh, it was it was thought by some that if we move beyond religion, if we move beyond faith, we'll usher in an age of freedom and of independence. We'll no longer be shackled by the the, the laws and the rules of faith that keep us oppressed. And we'll move into a time of psychological health, and well-being. But the truth is, that's not the age we live in. And a faithless age, uh, Taylor says, often feels a lot more like this. Modern life feels flat, empty. We search for something within or beyond it, which could compensate for the meaning lost with transcendence, lost with the sense that there's something more or greater beyond this life. We search for some deeper resonance, which we feel should be there. In other words, what Taylor is saying, and what, the, uh, what this famous agnostic was saying, is that we all have a hunger for the holy. That every single person, whether they know it or not, has a deep ache or longing for something more than this world, and when that hunger goes dissatisfied, we will have a sense of flatness or of emptiness, that something is missing in our lives. Now, you may be thinking, well, that, that's, that doesn't seem to be the case. Maybe that, you think that doesn't seem to be the case for you. Maybe you look around at your friends and neighbors, and it doesn't seem like there's some deep existential ache for something more. It seems like they're getting on very happily with their lives, or if they're not, what they really need is just better holidays or better relationships or a better career or whatever it may be. Is this true that there's a hunger for the holy in every person? The Bible talks about the human condition in a variety of different but mutually complementary ways. It talks about sin, we might say in a variety of different ways, it can say sin is breaking the law. It's going against the way we should be living. Sin is loving the wrong things. It's idolatry. It's putting the wrong thing kind of in first place in your life. Sin is failing to love your neighbor. Sin can be talked about in all of these different ways, but one of the most interesting and richest ways it talks about the human condition that might be a bit more foreign to us is it says sin is sort of like being in a state of alienation or estrangement. It's like being on the outside looking in. It's like feeling like your soul, your inner being is, is almost homeless, that it's not where it should be, that you long for a depth of relationship or meaning or purpose or significance that isn't there. And you can see the whole story up to this point in the Bible, up to this covenant with Sinai, as a story about the human condition being one of lostness or being on the outside of alienation. When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they are sent east of Eden. And this term is this rich term describing they were in the garden. They are in a place of communion and love with God and with one another and with the earth. And after things go wrong, they are sent outside the garden. They have this sense of being on the outside of the way things are meant to be looking in. When Cain sins, God says, you will now be a restless wanderer. On the earth. That restlessness gets to the core of this idea of alienation, that that you will feel like I'm not in the right place. Things aren't as they're meant to be. Something is missing. As we talked about a few weeks ago, Israel in slavery is described as being in a similar state. When Moses comes to Pharaoh, he doesn't just say, uh, let my people go. Every time he comes to him, he says the same thing. He says, let my people go so they can serve me or worship me as priests. That's the kind of language that's used in the wilderness. What he's saying is, is basically you're treating these people as slaves. You're acting as if all they're here to do is to perform menial tasks for you, but they're not. They're made for something greater. You're keeping them in a state of purposelessness and of lack, and I want to bring them back to me to this fuller, more fulsome form of life. And that brings us to this text this morning, to what Mount Sinai is all about. This is the way out of alienation. This is the way back to a life of purpose and meaning and significance. And there's two words that kind of ring throughout this whole passage. The word, This passage and really all of the descriptions going into the next few chapters and even in other books about what this covenant at Sinai is all about. One word is holy. And for something to be holy is it for for it to be, at its most basic level, set apart. It's to not just be normal. It's to not just be common. It's to be set apart, to be declared to be sacred, or unique, or special, or worthwhile, to have a unique value and purpose. And what this covenant at Sinai is all about is that this unbelievably, unimaginably holy God, who is more set apart than the most set apart thing we can imagine, he's going to come dwell in your midst. And if he is going to dwell with you, then you too will need to be holy because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp, therefore your camp must be holy. But the other word that is ringing through the whole passage is the word glory. It's this This Hebrew word, kabod, or something like that. I don't know how to pronounce it. And it could literally be translated weight, significance. That what descends on the top of Mount Sinai is something so weighty, so significant, so heavy, that everything else suddenly seems trivial and purposeless and without significance. And God comes to these people and he says, You are not made to just perform menial tasks for your overlord in Egypt. You are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You, because of your closeness and intimacy, because of the fact that you are being freed from lostness and alienation, and being brought near to this holy God, you too are to become holy. And you are to become people that live in his presence and actually spread that holiness and purpose and weightiness and glory to the whole world. A priest is someone that is a kind of go-between between between God and the people. And at Sinai, Israel is told this whole nation is the go-between, between this holy God and a world that is living in lostness and alienation. You're bringing this weight and this holiness to the world. And so what I think then the Bible suggests is that Taylor is right, that whether we know it or not, we have this hunger for something deeper, something more, something with more weight, and the kind of trivial things we are living for, and that therefore our modern life is not, now that we're freed from God, is not a life where we are full and satisfied and whole. It's a life where something profound is missing, and that hunger for the holy will break through the cracks in various ways. And I'm, I wanna actually give a couple of concrete examples of this, because I do think that people are waking up to this. And what's interesting is is what Hardy said is Hardy didn't say everyone will know that they've lost something when they've lost the holy. He says the insistent question of each animate mind. In other words, if you're awake, if you're not distracted, if you're willing to ask the bigger question about who am I and what am I here for, if you don't have the holy, you will know something is missing. And I actually think in our culture, at times, people are... Waking up to this, maybe people saw this, this was kind of widely commented on this week, and people were kind of debating this, but Ayin Hirsi Ali, another name, I'm not probably pronounced that wrong, I'm sorry. Um, I'm just mispronouncing everything this week. Um, She was this, uh, raised in a Muslim house, became a famous new atheist because of her encounters with radical Islam, and this week published a kind of retraction of much of her life, saying why I am now a Christian. And people have debated this. Richard Dawkins wrote an open letter really angry at her. Um, But here's how one of the the lines that a lot of people have grabbed onto. I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? In other words, where can I find something weighty, something glorious, something holy? And she's not alone. I'm going to give a couple examples. There was a hilarious article in the New York Times called New York's Hottest Club is the Catholic Church. And it told all, all of these stories of a particular subset of young people which were attracted to very traditional forms of religion. They weren't attracted to a form of religion which was kind of toned down and which was made normal and was made very modern. They were attracted to the most rigorous traditional form they could find. This is how the, the article started. As senior churchmen seek to make Catholicism palatable to modernity, members of a small but significant scene are turning to the ancient faith in defiance of liberal pieties. Julia Yost, the author, basically said her story, she wasn't, as we might think, repulsed by the moral claims of Christianity. It was the very opposite. She looked at her own life and she found it morally vacuous, morally empty. She said, I spent a lot of time critiquing people that I thought were doing things that were wrong, but there was no real weight or significance to my life. And she was drawn to a faith that actually had clear boundaries that had rights and wrong. Finally, last example, this was from this week as well. Jacob Phillips was a trader working in the city in London. And when he got to this, he was a young man, when he got to this, the, the firm he was working for, he said on the first day they told him, we are here to make as much money as quick as we can, as fast as we can, end of. And he said that kind of drive drove most of his colleagues and himself to live a life of working incredibly hard and then partying incredibly hard to make up for how hard they worked. He told some really hilarious stories in this article that if you went into the men's toilets at around 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon, you would hear tons of people sniffing because they were all doing drugs to make it through the end of the work week. And he said at this point he started feeling this ache. This sense that something was missing, and he was embarrassed, he was ashamed by what he started to do in response to this hunger. He said, while his friends were off doing that, he started during his lunch break, going and sitting in churches and going to services. And he said, in the first few minutes kneeling in the pews, there'd be a radical decentering of all those values the world held dear. It was the contradictor- contradictory countercultural and radical elements of Christianity which captured my imagination. The apostles didn't lay down their nets to become fishers of self-fulfillment. The martyrs didn't die for the good educational outcomes of stable families. At the center of anything purporting to be Christian must always be the radically disruptive reality of lives being lived in ways which are not of our own choosing. In other words, what you see in all three of these stories is two elements of the holy, the two key elements we see in Sinai. First, we see that what is longed for is something that is holy, other that isn't the same as what we've been experiencing. All of the elements of this story, of a mountain that is full of fire and smoke and an earthquake, these are all ancient ideas. They were in lots of ancient cultures at the time. Lots of ancient deities were depicted with these same symbols. They're a way, basically, of symbolizing you are coming to the pinnacle of existence, to what life is all about. The voice of God, the word that is used there, could mean literally speaking or it could mean thunder. What happens at Sinai is we realize that we come to something which is weighty and holy and other and that truly attacks the flatness of modern life because it's radically different. It's not just more of the same. But the second thing, and it's the second thing you saw in all three of those stories, is if you are to be near something this holy other, then it requires you to become holy. The word used again and again in this passage, consecrated, is just a a way of, it's the exact same word, to be made holy. And what the Sinai Covenant goes on to describe is the way of living which begins to reflect the holiness of this God, that to be near something this blazingly good, you will have to become good in response. So what does this then mean for us? What does it mean for us to recapture and to cultivate in ourselves a hunger for this same holiness? I can't imagine something that would be more spiritually essential in a world that is often flat and that feels empty. And at this point, I don't think there is one answer, okay? By which I mean to say I don't know where the sermon should go from here. (laughs) Because genuinely, I wrote about... I, I just was... Thinking about this so much, and I ended up writing a bunch of different things, and I said, Wow, there is no one answer. There is no one prescription, and what we each need might be slightly different. But what I absolutely do think is the case is that what the stories of what we just heard suggest to me, what the story of the Bible leading up to Sinai suggests, is that if you want to have a fresh encounter with God's holiness, we should not be embarrassed about what is unique and different and strange and challenging and other about the Christian story. Because might it be that precisely those things in all of the way they challenge our assumptions are precisely the moments at which in a world that often feels empty and flat, we are ushered in and offered in to a world that begins to have meaning and purpose and significance again. It's why, by the way, sometimes um, people always wonder why I like to show such good such uh, like fancy art at cornerstone okay they 're like, why do you show that art? Is it because I remember when i was when I was doing youth work, um, there was this guy in, in our in our congregation that was co- or not our congregation, our like youth youth group, and we would always play really big, loud music when all the kids came in. did you guys do that at young life? yeah, loud you know get hyped um, and i'm sorry we didn 't do that this morning but when he would be like, "Why do you sometimes play non-Christian music at the beginning? Why isn't?" And, and it was like a mix. Sometimes it'd be like a mix of some like Christian music, some non. He's and he's like, "I know why you do it. You do it." And this was kind of a sheltered child. He was like, "You do this because you're trying to attract the non-Christians, aren't you?" Like they're just like, "I hear non-Christian music now." I'll come. Like I don't think it works like that. But I said, "No, we just do it because it's good music." That never even crossed our mind. Why, why do we show, ni- do I, I never think, oh, let's show nice art because then we'll get the arty people. I'm not an arty person. What does beauty do? We just choose things that are beautiful. Because sometimes beauty is a lens to shock us out of the flatness of modern life and to create that yearning and ache in us for something more. And moments of transcendence and beauty, whether you're looking at a sunset or you're sitting with someone you love or you're seeing a painting which you wouldn't naturally like but strikes you as beautiful in a strange way, creates that ache in you for something greater, something more. So again, the question we're ending with, that, I'm tr- that I don't know the answer to. How do we develop in us that hunger for the holy? Maybe beauty's one. Charles Taylor, he has his own suggestion. He says, okay, why is it, if this is true, if modern life without God feels flat, how come religious people usually feel flat too? How come it's not like we go to church and we're like, yes, I have, I've had a transcendent experience. Now my life is full of significance, meaning, and value. And part of the reason he says this is challenging is because traditional forms of religion were about more than you. They connected you to a community, to a denomination, to a society, to a culture, to a tradition that was bigger and greater than you. And he goes on to say this, and I've translated it into my own terms. We have instead a choose-your-own-adventure style religion, okay? Have you guys ever read those choose-your-own-adventure style books, where you kind of go and you're like, at the first page, do I go left or right? And then you go right, and it's like a goblin has eaten you. If that is your approach to religion, that's fine. Genuinely, I'm not, I'm sounding like, I am making fun of it a little bit, but it's fine. If you're like, I don't know which part of Christianity I want, which part I don't, great. Go at your own pace, figure it out. Genuinely, that's lovely. But might it be, might it be that part of the reason we're not experiencing the transcendent and the holy is because there are certain things that God has declared holy. The reason we call the Bible Holy Scripture is because if you choose not to make this a part of your, your faith journey, there will be an emptiness. There will be a lack. Because I don't think the Bible is, a, is just a group of texts from a long time ago. It's the living word of God, where God speaks and breaks through the centuries into our ages today. And the spirituality without the Bible at the center will be lacking something. I don't think that this community is like every other community. One holy Catholic Church is what we say, that for all its flaws and imperfection and brokenness, the church is a community of priests that are being made holy and a spirituality without the difficulty and the challenge and the confrontation of the holy church will be missing something. This table isn't like every other table. And C.S. Lewis said it this way, very famous quote people cite all the time. Next, the blessed sacrament itself, which is this table. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Don't miss the first part of that. Coming to this table isn't just remembering something nice Jesus did. It's drawing in up Mount Sinai, <laughs> coming near the holy. But if God is this holy other, And if he has made human creatures to be his priests, to be those who are his image bearers, who dwell in his presence, then every time you look across the table at the eyes of another human that you're jealous of, that you're angry at, that's hurt your feelings, you're drawing near to the holy. And the way you treat them says something about your regard for God. By the way, it's not a coincidence that if you have a culture that loses the holy, you also lose the dignity of humans. You begin treating humans as means to ends rather than as sacred image bearers. Nietzsche, the great critic of Christianity said it best. Another Christian concept no less crazy, the concept of equality of souls before God. The concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. In other words, the roots of the idea that every human is equal and that every human has dignity and value is the fact that they are equal before God, that they are made in the image of a holy God. So, what does that mean for us? It means that all of the supposedly mundane parts of our life are opportunities to be a priest, that these are moments with sacred image bearers of God, which we as God's priests are meant to make holy, that what it means to capture a hunger for the holy isn't just about what happens when you read the Bible or what happens when you go to church or what happens when you go to the Lord's table. It is about those things. Those are unique and different, but it is just as much about the way that you set up your dinner table with your family. Is this just something we've thrown together because we're trying to get through the day? Or is this a moment to be attentive to the image of the Holy God that stands before you? When you're doing whatever you do, when you're taking care of a patient on your ward, when you're going setting up your classroom at school, you have an option. Will you treat this just as a menial task to be performed to get through the day and to get a paycheck and to make it to the weekend? Will you think that whatever I'm doing, I have a task to be an image bearer serving at table with other image bearers to make this a place where their dignity and their value and their holiness is recognized and respected. This too is a way we recapture that hunger for the holy, realizing it isn't only something that we experience at beautiful sunsets or in cathedrals, but that we experience in all of the particularity of life. And the reason is because the end of the story after Sinai is meant to be that that glory which was on the top of the mountain will fill the whole earth. I end with this just blatant appeal to our emotions. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The end of this story is a world that has felt alienated, like they're on the outside, looking in at some glorious home, which we are not a part of, that that home will slowly, through people serving and cultivating and caring, that that will feel the whole earth, and the weight that was on the top of that Mount Sinai, will cover the earth as water covers the sea. And of course, the end of the story has to be this. Those words we we read, that talks about that process. That's why we read Isaiah 60. This is the process of that holiness and glory covering the earth. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. This word, these words are all rich with the resonances that the New Testament will pick up to describe Jesus that the end of this story is that that glory, that holiness, that light came and took on flesh and he didn't arrive in a glorious cathedral. He didn't arrive in in, in, in majesty and power like a king. He came and he said, if you want to find the holy in this world, look to the poor, look to the brokenhearted, look to the humble, look to the meek because that is who he chose to associate with, and that is the perfect representation in our world of what the blazing, fiery holiness of Sinai looks like. And so fortunately, there is no command on us that we will perfectly embody this holiness and that we will fill the earth with it. There is just the freedom that the holy has come down from the mountain, has dwelt and walked among us, and has freely offered us to walk by his side, and to fill the world with his glory again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, create in us a hunger for something more than the flat, trivial, distracted existence which can fill our hearts and minds as we're running around trying to complete all of our tasks or fulfill whatever we feel is expected of us or live up to others' expectations. May we have a hunger for a life that is is yearning for something more, for something other, for something greater. And as we come to your table this morning, may we receive a taste of that holiness and that glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.